0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash
1: David McWilliams. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door go to bluenile.com and use promo code listen to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more that's code listen at bluenile.com for $50 off bluenile.com code listen a lot can happen in 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly 3 years in some states learn more at uh1.com
2: Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up?
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by ACAST.
0: It is August. It is the time for geopolitics. Amazingly, August has been the month where big events happen. First World War, August. Second World War, early September, planned and put together in August. The collapse of the ruble, August. Why am I talking about the ruble, the First World War, the Second World War? Because we're now going to talk about Russia. Russia after Putin with Mikhail Khodorkovsky. This is a conversation I had at Doki. This is a guy I've been trying to speak to for many, many years. He's fascinated me because he was the oligarch that was used as the example by Putin Of people who cross Putin. Khodorkovsky crossed Putin in February, February of 2004. By September 2004, Khodorkovsky was in prison in Siberia in a gulag and Putin had effectively thrown away the key. He's released 10 years later. He is now part of the Russian opposition if you want to know what's happening in Russia, you've got to talk to and listen to this guy, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. It's a fascinating conversation, particularly with Russia at such a tipping point right now. If you want to understand the next few years in Europe, Russia is a key part of that equation that we sometimes never, ever really reflect on to some degree. So I hope you enjoy it. Russia after Putin with me and Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, how are you? Excellent. Mikhail, can I look at the history? I want to talk about you and Putin and what happened and the future, but I just want to talk a wee bit about the past. If we look at the last, let's say, 30 years, from the late 1980s into the 90s, the collapse of communism, the end of Gorbachev, the arrival of Yeltsin, then the arrival of Putin, the oligarch era in the middle of this... You were at the center of everything. You know, when you were 39, you were the richest man in Russia. When you were 40, you were in prison for 10 years. Can you give me a sense of that 30-year history, the 90s through the noughties and into the last decade? What has happened to your home country? What has happened to Russia?
3: (inaudible) Just in...
4: To say it briefly, 1990s, 1990s was the time of poverty, was the time of huge risks and of huge hopes as well. The noughties
3: were the time of more or less the beginning of people enriching
4: themselves, getting richer,
3: and still some hope.
4: From 2010 onwards, we are still talking about people getting richer, but losing hope. Hopes are getting few and far between. And finally, when we talk about the recent seven to eight years, there are very few hopes left, and people are getting impoverished. So, this is unfortunately a very unfortunate cycle that happened in our country.
0: And when you're looking at this cycle, Mikhail, and you're talking about maybe greater cycles in Russia, right? greater historical cycles, many, many people in the West don't really understand Russia. And many people maybe believe that that's the way the Russians like it, this sort of an enigma wrapped in a mystery, etc. Mm-hmm. To what extent is Russia conflicted as a nation between whether it's a Slavic, Mother Russia, Slavic power, or whether it's a, a power that needs to look West all the time and wants to look West?
3: Well, well, to begin
4: with, it's impossible to describe the entire uh, Russia unified object. There are lots of different Russias, at least three. There's the post-industrial Russia, the modernist Russia of Moscow, St. Petersburg, Novosibirsk, and Yekaterinburg. There's also Russia which is in the process of modernization, but already industrial Russia. We're talking about Russia in the middle of Europe, middle European parts of Russia, of the Urals, for example. And then there is also Russia, which is in the pre-industrial era, still. I would say of the sort of tribal Russia, of the Northern Caucasus, of Yakutia, of Buryatia, and other entities. So if you describe Russia as a single object, you would only be able to do that if there was an absolutely totalitarian regime where we are actually moving to, and hopefully not And in. So what we can surely say about Russia is that Russia is moving, following... European, the European civilization with a lag of about 50 years. There is also modernization happening in Russia, humanization, democratization happening, but there is a lag of about 50 years. There is a delay. And I cannot see any reason whatsoever why such a situation would change sharply. We are not the Chinese, that's for sure. Can you explain to me why
0: is there such a delay?
3: Well, the main reason
4: for that is as follows. The density of population in Russia. Historically, if you look at Russia, Russian lands were less productive than when we talk about the Western European lands. In order to survive, people had to settle on larger, vaster territories. So the density of population, the population density was much lower, and therefore the wealth was also lower, because communications were costly.
3: Defense costs were high. And
4: you can understand quite well that the poorer society, the more dispersed it is, the lower the density of population, the fewer large cities there are, the slower the progress and the development. This is all well described by Gumilov, Russian historian, and all of those who want to understand the reasons why and how Russia developed, I would suggest that they read the Russian historian Gumilov. I'm just going to quote you from a Russian
0: poet, Twitchev, writing about Russia and the sense of Russianness. And he, he writes... You cannot grasp Russia with your mind or judge her by any common measure. Russia is one of a special kind. You can only believe in her. Now that was written in 1866, a long, long time ago. It's almost like describing a country with some sort of, the Americans call it their manifest destiny, but it's also describing a country that seems to feel that it has a destiny and that destiny is almost bigger than the country itself and almost more dominant than the country itself. Because a lot of Western Europeans, when they look at Russia, they get this feeling that we cannot grasp it with our mind.
3: Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm
4: really happy if Westerners can understand themselves, their own countries, and their neighbors. Because my experience of engaging with the West shows that, in fact, it is impossible to generalize and say the West, Western countries. You just can't generalize and say Western Europe. There is Germany on the one hand, and there is at the same time Italy, which is very different from Germany. And yet there is a very different France from both of them. And then there is Greece, which is unique as well, and so on and so forth. And all of these countries have their own specifics.
3: I think Ireland, of course,
4: surely has its own character. And of course, such an enormous country as Russia, which, apart from Russians, is inhabited by many different other nations, ethnic groups, which has survived a a huge number of attacks, conquests coming from the West, from the South, from the East. If you remember your Russian history, you know that the Crimean Tatars, for example, burned down Moscow a long time ago. So when you talk about Russia, it is a kind of crossroads. It's a crossroads between Europe, the West, the South, and the East. And of course, this means, and this creates a sort of original civilization, a unique civilization, and yet at the same time, its vector is towards Europe, European civilization.
0: Now, it's interesting you talk about this huge, big crossroads, this civilization, because that brings me to this, this idea that uh, you sometimes hear talked about, which is that Russia is so big, so difficult to control, that you need a Peter the Great or a Catherine the Great or a Joseph Stalin or a big emperor, or a strong man to run the place. This is the default position of a lot of people looking at Russia. What do, what do, you, what do you think of that argument? that because it's so big and so massive and so crucial geopolitically, that the people need the strong leader and then Putin tries
3: to fit this role? At the
4: time when the main problems for Russia were foreign threats,
3: external threats,
4: obviously it was very important to have a strong leader because at the moment of foreign aggression, military aggression, There is no time to resolve things democratically. There is just no time to do that. And therefore, you're forced to choose a military leader, a strong leader. Fortunately, since the last Great War, we have lived for over 70 years in peace, and now the whole world is engaged in solving peace problems. So when we talk about peace problems, development, social development, economic development, we have to... Bear in mind what I said at the beginning. Russia is a very diverse
3: country. And one
4: leader is incapable of understanding and also incapable of putting together all the interests of these very diverse Russian territories and Russian communities that populate Russia. And here what we have is two options, right? The first option which has always been the favourite of our dictators and our strong-hand leaders, and so on and so forth, to unify the country and to say that it is a homogeneous country, and nothing good has ever come of it, but there have been a lot of victims, losses and blood shed following this option. The second option is, in my view, is a normal, proper option to move from a military Leadership to the regime of political representation when all communities that make up Russia are, on the one hand, Self governing, and on the other hand, have their own political representatives who themselves have a chance to find this balance of interests to seek it. So, this is why myself and many other people in Russia recently have been standing for the parliamentary democracy, parliamentary model of development of Russian government, of course, with federalism and local self government.
0: because that what that demands then is a transition of power from Putin and his regime to something quite different. Are you confident that the transition of power can happen peacefully? Are there two or three options the way you see Russia in the next five years
3: uh Yes. Well, I think that
4: realistically, the handover of power from the Putin regime to a regime of democratic forces, that I hope parliamentary regime, a real federalist regime, will happen, unfortunately, to my great regret, by force. It's very likely by revolution. To what extent this is going to happen by force? This is going to depend on to what extent people holding power would be ready to concede or risk their own lives, their own fates in order to try and hold on to power. But when we talk about peaceful transition, is something I don't believe very much into. Because the mechanism of a peaceful transition can only happen as a result of elections, or as a result of some guarantees in place. There is no subject, no entity in the Russian Federation or outside it, which at the moment is capable of providing such guarantees to the existing regime, to the existing power holders that they would believe in, that they would trust. On the other hand, the legislation that they have Adopted so far, and the enforcement that they have adopted so far does not allow anyone realistically to take part in elections and win the elections. Just because, uh, according to the current laws, the authorities can ban anyone, absolutely anyone, to run in the elections. And they can also use any method or consider. The results of those elections and calculate them their own way. Nobody could be able to verify it. This is how they act. This is how present legislation functions. Obviously, such a situation cannot be preserved forever, cannot exist forever. However, in order to change it, we would need to go beyond the legal framework of today. And
3: that means a revolution.
0: It's fascinating to me that you talk about a second Russian revolution because it strikes me that the way in which the Putin regime in the last few months has become much, much more oppressive against opposition on the streets, against people like yourself and Open Russia. You see what's happening uh, with Lukashenko in Belarus, which is part of the same game. There is a, there's an amazing fragility in apparently strong regimes when they start to act very bluntly. Because when a regime is confident, it's kind of like, yeah, whatever, we've got opposition, but we're in control, it's not a big deal, we'll sort things out. But when a regime begins to act with extraordinary bluntness and short-sightedness, it strikes me as a sign of fragility. How fragile do you think the Putin regime is? And again, the reason I ask you this is, sometimes the strongest regimes in the world End up being very fragile. And the regimes that look quite fragile end up being quite robust because, in fragility, they're able to be resourceful and they're able to change and move and do sort of deals. So, what sense do you get that the Putin regime is more fragile than we think?
3: I'm not an optimist as far as this is concerned. I think that the
4: Putin regime is ready to shoot, to use power, to use. Firepower, and I think it can still carry on for a while, for quite a while. So I think until 2024, until the year when Putin is going to try and extend his term in office, it's going to carry on. And I think it will probably carry on beyond 2024. But then after that, there is
3: doubt, serious
4: doubt about its future. It is sufficient for some heavy events to take Place in Russia, for example, something similar to the tragedy when we had a a thirty or forty children burning in a big fire in one of the cities in Russia. A series of such tragic events could bring a crisis, bring over a crisis for the regime. Unfortunately, such events in the life of any country do happen, and in the country where the system of government has been totally destroyed as a result of the fact that the government itself, the state itself, for about uh, 15 or more years, has been controlled by a small clique of criminals. This system, such a system, is incapable of reacting properly to challenges it faces. The question is when such challenges arise, when they're going to happen, What is going to have such a challenge? People coming out into the streets without weapons? No, for this system, it's not a challenge because the regime is going to use force and is ready to use force, and it has demonstrated it full well.
0: So to put it in the historical context, what we're talking about is the difference between, let's say, going back to 1990, 1989, the Tiananmen Square option, which the Chinese deployed and very effectively, or the Gorbachev option, which was, we're going to let things materialize as they do from the street. And what you're saying is that Putin is much more Tiananmen Square than Gorbachev?
3: Well, well,
4: it's definitely, it's definite that Putin is no Gorbachev. It's absolutely clear. To what extent is he a danger of pin? Well... I have absolutely no doubts that he is not the Chinese leader we are talking about because there is no changeover of power, there is no effectiveness of running the country, and there is no idea of service apart from the idea of using force. There is nothing that he has in common with Deng Xiaoping, neither he or his entourage. Therefore, I think that the Putin regime is
3: not going to
0: survive a now that, is, that is fascinating because many people look at Putin, and they say, oh, he looks as if he's going to be around for a long, long time. But I think that this idea that regimes come to an end and come quickly to an end is something that we should be very cognizant of because we kind of caught ourselves in the, you know, that there's gradualism and things happen slowly and there's always a cause. And but in actual fact, we know even from looking at the pandemic, things strike you. And you're in a totally new dispensation. Can I ask you about your relationship with Vladimir Putin himself? Because this is a relationship that has been character- has basically characterized his much of his political life and much of your life. When you first met him,
4: what did you think of him? Well, I met him when he became prime minister. And he seemed to me sufficiently modern as a person, sufficiently up-to-date and understanding the global changes occurring in the world. In reality, a few years later, I realized that, in fact, Putin can well adapt to the person he's talking to. You want a strong leader? He will show you that he's a strong leader. You want to see somebody who understands who is liberal, a liberal leader of a country, he will pretend to be such a person. You shouldn't deceive yourself by him using his professional skills. He's a KGB recruiter, and you have to be clear. This is what he's doing. He, what is inside Putin, became apparent a few years later, a few years later. The conflict that I had with him turned out to be, because I took him for somebody else, largely. Because in 2003, the question arose where Russia was going to go on. Either it was going to move in the direction of a normal, transparent, European-style country with a transparent way of doing business, and then we have to forego corruption, or we're going to move in a different direction. And I thought, it seemed to me, that for the president of the country, as I saw him, the first option, the first route, was absolutely correct and more acceptable. And that those corruption problems that existed around him were the problems that had nothing to do with him personally, or perhaps had something to do with the fact that he didn't have sufficient governing experience. So when I gave him specific examples of those corrupt schemes, corrupt projects taking part around him. And I said that Russian society thinks that the government and the operators are corrupt, that a lot of Russians think that the president was corrupt, that something has to be done about it. Putin was outraged by that, and I couldn't understand why at the time. But it turned out that the examples I adduced to him about... Northern oil, was the one of the biggest grab which the $400 million, the first $400 million that were being grabbed, which were going to be input to the general cash, to the general kitty. And I exposed that publicly, how that kitty was being formed for Putin's sake. Unfortunately, Putin, the Putin we know now is the Putin who created a system based on corruption. Corruption is a pivotal part of his system of governance. If you want to work, you have to be corrupt. You have to be corrupted if you want to work with Putin. And you also have to carry out his orders, his instructions. As long as you do it, his, your corrupt practices are a good sign. It means that you are the same as the rest of them. If you're not corrupt, this means you're different from the rest and you cannot be trusted. But at the time when you don't follow the orders or somebody else wants your place, your corruption becomes what it is in reality. It's a crime. And this crime allows to remove you, to sack you, to imprison you, to do whatever they want with you. This is a well-oiled model a well-thought-out
0: model of Putin's behavior. And what it leads, Mikhail, is the fact that if they're all corrupt together, they all go down together, which means that this transition that we spoke about is much more likely to be the violent one, not least because there's no exit strategy for these people. They don't have an exit strategy. You talked about earlier on, maybe somebody giving them a guarantee from the West, like has happened with many dictators in the past. Countries say, look, we'll take you in, You can live the rest of your life here in relative luxury and we'll forget about it. But nobody's going to do that to Putin, it seems. And this is what it seems you're saying to me,
3: that it's going to end badly. Unfortunately,
4: I'm convinced that since 2014, the Putin regime has passed that crossroads where there was still a chance for it to calmly using some guarantees to complete its term in office. Unfortunately, today, this is no longer possible. So the question really is whether this is going to be a handover of power, a transition of a more or less peaceful, without too much force being used, more or less vegetarian way of, Power transition. So, are the people in the regime who are still alive then? Are they going to get the guarantees of human rights, which they would get in a democratic country? Or, and unfortunately, to my greater grand, this second option, which I don't like at all, which is also possible, the regime transition or handover is going to be such a violent turnover. There's going to be another dictator replacing this dictator, and therefore there can be no guarantees for the previous regime. There would be no talk, no possibility of providing such guarantees. Who is going to provide such guarantees? There'll be no human rights for the officials in the former regime. They'll all be cleansed away, as happened before, in the Russian history and in other histories of other countries. So I think we all have to have a vested interest in Russia, moving along the first model, the first route, the model when the dictatorship is replaced by the rule of law. Your painting The picture you're
0: painting of this slightly apocalyptic end to the Putin regime, for, for example, take Western Europe. Western Europe will be impacted hugely by this, by mass migration of Russian young people leaving uh, in this sort of context, huge destabilization in Ukraine, huge destabilization on the borders of Poland, these sort of countries which are on the on the buffer. I mean, do you think that the Western Europeans have any sense of how volatile things are at the
3: moment? Well, first
4: and foremost, I would like to say that Western Europe has a very clear idea of this because it's already happening today. This instability, Everything you've just described, it's already taking place now. Young people are leaving en
3: masse.
4: Ukraine is subjected to aggression. Belarus, you know what's happening. God knows what is happening in Belarus. The Baltic states, where the Putin regime is trying to provoke instability there as well, let alone the countries of the former Soviet Union. When we're talking about the west of western europe germany we have interference by the putin regime in italy same interference in france same interference infiltration everything this regime can do in order to destabilize western europe it's already doing very well so i would not expect any tragedy from the fact that there's going to be a changeover of regime Yes, it can either preserve the situation, the status quo that we have today, and it's the worst-case scenario, and I hope this is not going to be the case, or if it is the case, it's not going to exist for much longer, or the country has to transit to democratic rails, to the democratic way of development, which it was trying to become at the end of
3: the 1990s.
2: That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
0: Mikal, can I ask you on a, a very personal level? I want to switch the discussion to your time in prison. We were talking there about the tactics of the regime. We were talking about their strategies, how they affect people, how they isolate people, how they take somebody into their corruption web and basically says, now you're one of us. Can you explain to me what went through your mind in the original months of prison, where you are a political prisoner, where you are isolated, you go from being the richest man in Russia to a guy in a small cell. How did you cope with that?
3: the way the person feels in
4: prison depends on the stability of their psychic or psychology and their experience. I was there when I was 40. I had already formed as a person. I had had a lot of experience and a lot of that experience was lived in the time of the Soviet Union. And I said to myself, I'm dealing with enemies. And yes, indeed, I am in the hands of an enemy. Well, I have to fight as as much as I can. And to what extent was it possible? I could talk during the trial, during the sessions in court, and I could also write articles which were published and people still remember, and I remember particularly the left turn, the famous left turn. Yes, because I wrote such articles, at the time I was still being allowed to publish outside prison, but every time I would be sent to a punishment cell. This this was supposed to be an honest exchange. I write an article, they put me in the punishment cell. And I accepted that. Yes, it was difficult, and it was difficult to understand that perhaps I would never leave prison, and perhaps I would die in prison. There was, and this was a difficult understanding, the difficult awareness that this might happen. But to say that I thought about that on a daily basis, no, that wasn't the case. What I thought about it on a daily basis was what was happening outside my cell, outside my prison. But in fact, any person, any person who finds themselves in prison They have a choice. They can either forget about freedom altogether and live by the prison. And it is easier. It's easier psychologically, it's simpler. It's easier. And it's something that the prison government is trying to propel you towards. The other option that I chose while I was in prison to live as though you're not in prison, to live with what's happening outside prison. And this is harder because every time you feel the restrictions and limitations that are being applied to you, but at the same time, you are not accepting prison. I did not accept prison. And this allowed me to preserve the normal language that I used before prison, and I'm still using now. It allowed me to regularly... Imbibe information, not just politically, but also technologically. And when I left prison, I straight away got involved in the existing life outside prison, despite the 10 years behind bars. Of course, it's very important that I was helped by the people near to me, by my friends and family. there was a huge influence of people who supported me, Russian citizens who supported me. Had it not been the case, it would have been much, much harder for me. And I'm really grateful to those
3: people. And how did it change? Uh, well,
4: I think you should ask me, not me, but my, my, my wife. I think she's the person to ask. My own feelings about that are as follows. I have really reevaluated all the values. If before prison, before finding myself in prison, I thought that business was the most important thing, very important in my life. And earning money, managing an industrial enterprise, business as a game was very important for me. Prison has shown to me that human life is the only value and human relations are the only value. And this breaks your understanding, so now I've left prison, I can not take prison seriously, or as seriously as I did before. Because I understand that business is just money. It's all about money. And money, this is much less important than human life and human relations. You're now
0: an exile from Russia, and Russia has always been very good at exiling its unwanted sons and daughters, and saying, look, you go over there, and we'll forget about you. If you were to be allowed to go back to Russia, what would you do?
4: Well, if I had a chance going back to Russia, not to find myself the same day imprisoned for life, and this is what is being promised to me, every day I'm being reminded about that, I would try to help the new young people who would manage the country, govern the country, as much as I can, in what I can, I have a lot of experience of managing crises in industry. I have a lot of experience of managing crises and of large cities and emergency management. And I think this kind of experience would be m- much in demand today. If that's not to say that I would love to do that. That I would aspire to do that. No, I think this is the stage I've already gone through. But if it were important for my country, if it needed me, I would spend a lot of what remains for me to live in this world to help my country to get out of the situation, to get out of the doldrums it found itself, thanks to Putin in the past 20
3: years.
0: Now, Mikhail, we started with this idea of a 30-year period from the late 1980s through to today, 35 years, give or take. Uh, You have been central to the Russian story in those 35 years for good and ill. If you had your time again, if Mikhail Kordakovsky, the 28-year-old, 25-year-old business person, sets up a bank, then figures out we can use this to buy this, we can do this, would you have done anything different? over those 30 years. Now you're looking back. Yes,
4: definitely.
3: Definitely.
0: That
4: conclusion that I has arrived at.
3: See, even
4: at the age of 20 and at the age of 30 and even 40, I still thought that there were some other wise people who involved in politics. And it's up to them to solve those really serious political and social issues, whereas I should do what I can and know how to do well, which is managing industrial enterprises and companies, the bank was a short period of my life, the bank, and then after that, five different large companies, and each of the companies was taken by me out of a critical situation, out of a crisis and I like that i So that my contribution in the recovery of Russian industry or the building of the Russian industry was the most important task in my life. And later I understood, and now I understand it full well, that the most important thing was different. It was wrong to replace democracy by economy. Economy is important, but the establishment of democracy is undoubtedly much more important because economy without a democracy can easily be hijacked by totalitarian regimes. And after that, the regime appropriates the results of economic development that for for that regime other people have brought about. And then they destroy those results, which is what's happening now. So the development, the establishment of the rule of law, the establishment of the democratic model of governance is undoubtedly much more important. And I think if I were to start again, I would much I would devote much more time to doing that and not to thinking that there are some other men who would deal with that do politics, people. Otherwise, politics
3: will do you. Mikhail
4: Khodorkovsky, thank you very much for
0: talking to us and talking, and hopefully we'll see you live in Dublin this time next year when we can all travel. Thank you. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
2: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.